Hello, this is Rick Millenthal from the Shipyard, and welcome to Voices of Resilience. In this series, we highlight the personal journeys of thought leaders through adversity and trauma to find resilience and hope. And we are pleased to have Dr. Adam Corker, after 37 years as a nephrologist, who built a chain of dialysis centers. He embarked on a second journey to change the lives of many addressing issues in mental health. His A.B. Corker Foundation has created 5K races in all 50 states in 50 days to raise awareness and funds for this important issue. Dr. Corker, welcome to Voices of Resilience. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rick. Now, uh, should I use Dr. Corker or Adel, or what would you be comfortable with today? <laughs> Adel, just fine. Well, that's great. So you embarked on this really from a personal journey. I think there was a change in your life and something that inspired you to do this. Yes, indeed. Uh, you know, when I decided to step down from my clinical practice, uh, I decided to, to, uh, to, to focus on uh, philanthropy. Philanthropy has always been a part of my existence all my life. Even back in the days when I didn't have much money, I always found money to, uh, or energy to support a non-for-profit organization. Historically, have always been focused on the environment and the human rights. But when I decided to step down from my clinical practice and establish the foundation, I was searching for a cause that I thought would be most relevant and most important. So I was reminded with my own personal experience and that of the experience of many of my patients who suffer from mental health issues. When I was about 40, I suffered from what I thought at the time, a heart attack. And I ended up in the emergency room at the hospital that I worked at. And there I underwent uh, not just one cardiac cath, uh, two cardiac cath, and also had an endoscopy and, and a few other tests that really confirmed that I did not have any physical reasons of why I should have those symptoms. And uh, while well, the gastroenterologist who was, uh, who was doing the endoscopy on me, a very good friend of mine, he said to me, Adol, you know, your symptoms sounds a lot like panic disorder. And at the time, you know, being an nephrologist, being focused on the body, and then we, and as physician, when we were trained, we never really thought to focus on the mind. When I got home, I read about panic disorder. And as I was reading about it, I was like, this is me. This is me. This is like me from my childhood. And I kept thinking about the days when I was 13, when I was having some heart issues and my mother would take me to the family doctor. And um, I realized, really, I have a panic disorder. And then I decided I really should pursue the care. And, and I didn't want to tell my partners. I didn't want to share it with anybody uh, except my immediate family. And I went to see a, a psychiatrist who did not belong to our healthcare system. And lo and behold, uh, really SSRI at the time, surgical and made a huge difference for me. I felt a lot better, uh, you know, did have some side effect, which I ended up having to stop it a few, you know, a few months down the line. But at the end of the day though, it gave me that little window of feeling good and then trying to decide what I need to do. And, and then it, it occurred to me that the center of my concern was my heart. And I said, you know, the best thing I can do is to stress it and then continue to exercise regularly. And I decided to take running more seriously. Clearly, that not only helped my 
physical well-being, but it tremendously helped my mental health because I knew that if there was something wrong that was going to happen to me, it was going to happen to me during a race when my heart rate is 130, 140 and, and, you know, stressing it. And so it gave me a lot of confidence. It gave me a lot of sense of security that my heart is okay. And, and then I noticed that as I was continuing to exercise regularly and run more competitively, that I was able to sleep better, less anxious and function overall better at home as a husband, father, practicing physician, and, and all of that. So this is how really running entered my life. And, and then when I decided that I wanted to set up a foundation, I decided, you know, the focus of my foundation is going to be mental health. And it's going to be about being more compassionate toward individuals with mental health and really make the world a better place for them. And, you know, people were hosting, you know, galas and stuff like that. And I said, no, 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 I, I don't want that. I want something that really touches every state, touches every person and links exercise into it. So I was on my treadmill um, running my, my 5K and uh, I have a map of the United States behind me. And I'm looking out at the glass that overlooks the backyard in my house. And uh, with the reflection of the map into the mirror, I noticed that, well, you know, <clears throat> here I am running 5K. I think I can run 5K in all 50 states and I can do it in 50 days. The question is, can I go to 50 states in 50 days? Well, that was at the time when I was going through recruiting for uh, executive director for the foundation. And suddenly one of the individuals that I interviewed said to me, he said, Adol, you know, I know someone who might be perfect for your position. And uh, his name is Chris Ponteri. I called him on a Thursday. I set up an appointment with him on Friday and I hired him on Monday because he assured me that that is possible, that you can do 5K in all 50 states in 50 days and we can organize events in every state. And we sure did. So 2018 was, was an incredible success. It was our first year doing this. And we had over 2,000 people participated throughout the nation. Uh, and it was an amazing event, uh, tremendous feedback. People shared their story. They come to the event, whether they ran or walk, they always had something important to say. Uh, and, and, and that really energized me and, and made me believe that this flagship event is going to last uh, we did it again in 2019, and then we ended up putting together a documentary film on this, which will be released uh, in a, about a month or so. We put it together with a film company called Foundation Films. And, uh, uh, and then, of course, 2020, we couldn't do it because of COVID, although we did it virtually. And now we're planning on doing it this year again virtually. Uh, the registration began January 1st, and I think we have a... Uh, more than a dozen people have already signed up. You said as a child you would have panic attacks. Right, right. I think the more I read about this, the more I learned about panic disorder, the more I realized that I really have had this for a long time. This was not just an event that just happened today. Uh, I realized that I've had, you know, many attacks over many, many years of my childhood. Do you think many people experience this? I really do. 
I think this is a disorder that often overlooked, uh, especially family physicians, internal medicine, primary doctors. They really don't uh, have a strong background in understanding mental health and realizing that so much goes on, especially during the teen lives with mental health. What does it feel like? Oh, what does panic disorder feels like? Yeah, what does it feel like? Uh, it's a sense of being not in control. Uh, I, I had one attack, I'm going to say two weeks ago, and the first one I had in a, in a number of times, in a number of months. Uh, and I was just sitting down. I was just about to start a webcast for a program that we're putting together at the foundation, a webinar. And it was like about 15 minutes before the event. And I was testing the microphone and I was wearing a shirt that was tight on my chest. And just the anxiety about, you know, being ready for the interview and the shirt that was tight on my chest and the temperature in the room got a little bit warmer. Uh, I just felt very dizzy and very lightheaded and I felt like I was going to pass out. But I knew what it was. You have this impending doom. You know, you have that sense that you look at your body and you think that, wow, it's getting so gray or pale or, you know, the sense that you're not in your own body, you know, you're, you know, why am I feeling so out of control? Uh, fortunately, I haven't had any of this magnitude for a long time, but this time was, um, you know, I think the pandemic is finally getting to me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we all have some sense of anxiety now, don't we? Or certainly a lack of control. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Now, you came to the States as a child. No, I came to the United States as a physician. I had just graduated from the medical school at Damascus University. And I was able to leave the country because I was uh, the top uh, graduates in my class. And uh, they allowed the top 10 to go for their training. I came to do my medical residency. Did you think you were going back? I, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yes. But you decided not to. Yeah, I decided not to. I made some attempts to go back, uh, but it really didn't, didn't work uh, in a way. If, you know, I think you, you know, I, I became so, uh, so intensely interested in academic medicine and science and technology. And, and I felt like when I go back, there was this challenge there that I'm not going to be able to get what I want. And, and then when I came back to the States after the final attempt to go back, I decided to apply for an NIH fellowship and pursue my academic career in the United States, which I did for a long time and was very, very successful at. It was quite ambitious. Were you surrounded by people in your childhood that inspired that ambition? Did you have peers that had a similar outlook to life? Well, not really. Uh, my dad uh, passed away when I was 13. Uh, he had maybe sixth grade education. Um, he was a jeweler. My mother was also maybe a ninth grade education, and um, she uh, um, was was really very uh, a tremendous model for me and for all of us as kids. Uh, two of my brothers are also physicians. Uh, she she was the the kind of person who I think uh, pushed us the most. Um, and I mean, I remember the days and I would go back to her and, and I would have, um, you know, graze at her, 
very good. And she'll say to me, she said, well, those grades are good because maybe the rest of the kids in your class are stupid. And that, I think that really stuck to my mind is that is success is not something determined by others, is you determine your own success and you determine your own path in life. Uh, you know, she was someone who didn't have a lot of education, but had a lot of common sense. But, but on top of it, she was very empathetic and very compassionate. And I think that's what I acquired my philanthropic view in life uh, with her because she was, I mean, I have a picture right now here in my office. Uh, she always remind me, um, you know, she always remind me of how we should never forget from where we came from and remember that we are all part of the human race. And we can all do so much more for each other if we just open our arms and hearts. We should never forget where we came from. Do you do that? I do. I don't forget that. Uh, you know, whether we, where you came from, you know, physically or whether you came from financially. Uh, I remember the days when I landed at, uh, at New York airport was uh, $30 in my pocket and a suitcase that had a couple pairs of pants, a few shirts. Mm -hmm. When I came to the United States was, and of course, I think you mentioned I built the dialysis business, and that's among many other things that I've done. I, I've built many businesses, and many I had, I had a lot of entrepreneurial interest, and fortunately, I've been successful with many of them. And uh, I, I never forgot about the fact that I came from, you know, uh, living in a small apartment, sharing it with my brother. But things have changed, and uh, but then uh, and uh, if you take a look at the, the what the foundation that I have has built is doing and, and providing you know early detection and treatment for uh, kids in the inner city, uh, uh, the uh, improvement to access of mental health care and the supporting of the educational program and the peer programs in in the inner city and in our community is really a reminder for me that you know, there are a lot of people who are not as privileged as I am, or many of us are. Also, having come from Syria and seeing what happened in Syria, I've, I've, I, I'm involved with a, a several overseas organizations that are providing mental health services to refugees. Um, you know, there's one organization in particular, Humanity Crew, which is based in Haifa, Israel, and uh, provide uh, mental health services to, to refugees in the Middle East uh, and in Europe. And also another foundation called Karim Foundation, which is founded in Chicago, which provides mental health care in Turkey. And you lost your father at 13, and he was a jeweler, you said. Yes. I still have some of his jewelry pieces and uh, some of the stuff that my mother left me. And, uh, yeah, so, I mean, he was the kind of guy who was very artistic, again, very entrepreneurial. I think that maybe I inherited that entrepreneurial spirit you know, he started a lot of businesses and um, ventured away from jewelry into all the things and and then ended up going back to the skill that he was taught by his father when they lived in uh, Palestine. He grew up actually in, in, uh, in Haifa uh, and then left in 47. Yes, obviously that had to have an effect on uh, your family and life and history uh, forever. Right. I mean, he lost everything, his store and everything. You know, he back when he came back to Damascus with my mother, you know, they, they basically lived at her family home in Damascus and then they had nothing. And I think that they, at the time they had two children. And then after that, they had three more. You were talking about your history and how it drove you as an entrepreneur and 
and I would call myself an entrepreneur building uh, businesses and marketing services. And, uh, you know, I have to share with you that, um, what do we call it? Panic disorder. I think I would call it panic disorder, anxiety. You know, I share it with you in many mornings. It happens to me in the morning. All of us have business issues. Most of them can be dealt with. You know, hardly anything's ever, well, really nothing is existential, right? (laughs) You know, and, uh, but sometimes in the early mornings before I really wake up, some issue becomes much larger, much more critical than it is. And I have some panic, just like you do. And I, I wonder if there's some commonality among entrepreneurs and anxiety. What do you think? Yes, I agree. I think that there is that desire to always make sure that everything goes right. And you and I know that that doesn't happen, that there is always going to be challenges and there's always going to be difficulties. I, I drive my executive director and my marketing people crazy because, because I always come up with the new ideas and new thoughts and things that I want to make sure that it's impactful, it's successful, as I want it to be. You know, I think now, you know, I just turned 70 and you feel like you're running against the time because we're all going to die. And I say, okay, I have to make sure that all of those things are done, that, that that mission is accomplished. And you and I know that mission will never be accomplished. Yeah. There will always be things undone. There will always be things. But trying to make every single day count in your life can be, can be a source of stress. Yeah, that's it. I mean, this, this, this push for perfection, perfection never exists, you know, striving for perfection, of course, you know, what, what do they say? Don't let perfection get in the way of progress, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. But there's nothing like looking at what you build and there's nothing and you have done that and I know you have, uh, and there are many people who are listening to this podcast know have, have, have done that where they've accomplished something and they look back at it and they have that sense of thrill, sense of cool air being inspired into their body. And it's like, oh my God, whether it's finishing up the kitchen, whether it's finishing up a book project, whether it's you know completing a business transaction or reaching a milestone, those things as hard as they are and as challenging as they are, Getting to that finish line is so amazingly rewarding and it, and it's so beautiful. It is. And when you can look back and feel that way, it's, it's wonderful. Uh, there are days you look back and say, boy, I, I could have done more. I mean, obviously those aren't are your, your best days when you feel that way, is it? Yeah, those are not. Although I, as I'm getting older, I'm trying not to um, beat myself for not having done more. Uh, to be honest with you, I finally decided to take some self-compassion uh, classes because I felt like I'd really been hard on myself and I need to stop forgiving myself for not having done some of the things uh, to the full extent that I would like to have and, or I wish I had. Self-compassion classes. I love that. What, what is that? Yeah, that's a process where I think that the first thing you start thinking about is that you know, I, I want to forgive myself for, for whatever, you know, and, and, and spending a little bit of time every day, which I do, 
basically putting your hand on your shoulder, on your heart, or in your lap, and and just feeling that uh, touch, and just simply meditating and relaxing. And we can't offer help to people if we can't really be helping ourselves as well. I think that's the sense that we've always struggled with in our life is that we've always wanted to be to everyone at any time and not be where we need to be ourselves with our own feelings and our own experiences. Adel, it's Karen. I'm sorry to interrupt, but you're you're hitting you're hitting me where I live right now in my heart because my favorite thing to do is a loving kindness meditation where you first send loving kindness to yourself before you can send loving kindness um, out to the world. And I think you're, what you're saying is so important. So I, um, I applaud you for knowing that the most important thing you can do is take care of yourself before you can take care of anybody else. It's like on the airplane where they say, put on your mask first before you, you know, help anybody else. Right, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And to be honest with you, I found that by doing that, you experience less stress and less anxiety, uh, you know, because you, your inner being is established. You know, you're anchored. So you have to be emotionally anchored in your own being to be able to help others come out of their, you know, the challenges that they're facing. That's beautiful, but it's hard to do. I know. Right? I, it, <laughs> it is hard because, you know, you know, I mean, I think of my mother, you know, she devoted all of her life to raising her five children without a husband, with very little money. And she did everything for us. She never cared about herself. She never paid attention to herself, her emotional being, her, you know, and at the end of the day, she struggled enormously. Yeah. So I think, I think we, we need to, we need, we need to self-empower for sure. And I think you told me before that you went through a, a divorce. I did. I did. And, uh, you know, the, the divorce was really a very, uh, a very interesting because it was nothing, something that I ever wanted to have and know that I think my spouse did. Uh, but we, we had a lot of challenges uh, in the last uh, 10 years of our marriage. And I think that the divorce in a way gave me that, a sense of the reality that our life is always changing. And no matter how much we think we have control on things, we really don't. And things can happen without being able to change it or control it or change a draft of it. So we just have to simply roll with the punches. And I looked at the divorce that I have as an opportunity to do several things. Number one, to start thinking about myself and about where I want to be in my future, where I want to be in my life. And also to start really rethinking that relationship I have with my former wife, who I love and adore, and I still do today. You know, uh, building a relationship that is uh, better than what we had before. Although we're not married, but we can still be very good friends and we can care for one another reach out for each other when we really need help or need some assistance or ideas or share thoughts. I truly believe that divorce is not a final event, although in my case, it gave me the opportunity to look at my future differently. And I think in a way that also empowered me to pursue the foundation more strongly because I realized that at the end of the day, 
nothing you have is really yours. It's all going to go away. You know, when you die, you're not taking anything with you. None of the material thing that you have around you mean anything anymore. And it really shouldn't be the focus of our life and the focus of our existence. And we think we own it, but we really don't. And we should stop thinking about what is it that we're doing for the rest of the world around us. Did you come to that conclusion later in life or that? Uh... I think so. I think that I think since my divorce, I really became very, very uh, interested in making a difference in other people's lives and trying to leave an impact. Because at the end of the day, like I said, nothing you have is really yours. And what you leave behind is something should be far more than that. Uh, something that is deeply impactful in the life of others. And that's what I'm trying to do with my foundation. And that's why I'm dedicating the rest of my life to make a difference in the life of many of those who are invisible, who are suffering. And by doing so, I will leave this world feeling that I've impactfully changed things. As entrepreneurs, we end up so driven by our businesses. Uh, marriage is another thing that's unfortunately sometimes not the priority it should be. We're so focused on the business and building, and we feel that's the thing we're doing for our family and our spouses and all. And then, you know, it, it actually can be a distraction from what's uh, important. I think marriage is a partnership that is probably the hardest partnership that you're ever getting into uh, because there's so many intricate factors that plays into it. Uh, and um, it, it is hard. We, we're never taught, you know, you know, the skills of being happily married forever is not something that we are taught and it's not something that we are, I think in a way, I think we as a human being are, are ever changing. And we think that, who we are today is the same person that we were 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 38 years ago when you got married. You're not. You're not. You're not. You're different. You're not the same person. There are so many things about you have changed, whether economically, physically, emotionally, psychologically. We're all changing. And I think to be able to adapt to those changes in the same way that with the business have to adapt with the change in the economy the relationship between a husband and wife have to, to adopt the changes that are happening within their own beings, within, uh, you know, they have children and they have grandchildren and, and they have travel. And so it, it's a very challenging. And I think it's it, not all of us are armed with the skills that it takes to make it last. Well said. Now, this is about fitness, isn't it? And your belief that the body is connected to the mind. I think that's exactly what you say. And to just talk to me a little about that. Yes, I think, you know, the, the positive impact of exercise on mental health is highly underestimated, I think, in my opinion. Growth factors that are released from exercise due to the muscle contractions are important for brain growth and brain sustainability. And you can see why people who exercise regularly live longer, not only live longer, but also they stay bright and they stay you know, longer. There's less risk of dementia in people who exercise regularly. So how it links to mental health? Well, being happy, being relaxed, being comfortable with yourself is so important. I think exercise also provides you with a tremendous uh, sense of stamina, sense of uh, that you can, you're able to. 
my wife, you just heard Karen, she's a long distance runner. So I live with a runner, but I'm not a runner. And, uh, and you obviously are an exceptional runner. Uh, advice for some that don't necessarily have the trained body to do something so substantial. What would be other things that they might do to this body connected to the mind? Vigorous walking is something that everybody is capable of doing. You know, you have elliptic, you have cycling, uh, you have other things that you can do to, to, to do aerobic. I think the aerobic nature of the exercise is very important for mental health. Uh, it turned out that really muscle strengthening alone does not provide sufficient amount of the aerobic nature that you need to, to combat uh, or deal with mental health issues. So uh, uh, walking, swimming, uh, you know, I have many of my patients who um, who I've in- encouraged, well, if they can't run, if they can't walk, go out and swim, and, and it made a huge difference in their lives. Uh, I think I think all of these type of exercises are very helpful, and there's just plenty of them out there. And I agree. What great advice. Any last thing you'd like to leave us with? Well, you know, I have a hope that someday we all, from the conversation that we just had today, are aware of the fact that mental health or ill mental health is something that affects all of us. It's my hope that someday our society will realize that and will start looking at mental health in the same way that they look at physical health. That is a parity issue. That is taking care of your mind and taking care of your body are synonymous and they have to be available to us in the same way as if they are a uniform entity, not one or the other. And also to remind all of us that taking care of our body through physical exercise is extremely important for our mental well-being because it's a circle. It's a circle that is a continuum. It's not fragmented. Our body, our mind are constantly interacting and communicating with each other, and we need to treat it as such. Well said. Dr. Adam Corker, that was a wonderful, wonderful conversation. I think it's one that will touch, frankly, entrepreneurs. It was uh, one that will touch uh, many, many people in uh, many places in life. And how you use those skills, those skills in medicine and skills in business to build just an amazing organization that's touching people in every state. Thanks so much uh, for joining us. That was terrific. You're very welcome. It was my pleasure and my honor. Wonderful. To learn more about the Adobe Corker Foundation, visit abkf.org, O-R-G, abkf.org. Stay connected. And uh, this this organization is, is on the move and is growing in every state in the country. Voices of Resilience is produced by the marketing engineers of the shipyard in collaboration with the Ohio State University Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Health. To listen to our whole series, visit us on VoicesOfResiliencePodcast.com or on Spotify, Google, and Apple Play. We were just named by Adweek as the best podcast in the nation launched during the pandemic. So many thanks to our award-winning team, Mike Long, Kate Masters, Coop Studios, and of course, my favorite, Karen Millenthal. Thanks for joining us.